you have your Bibles virtually, digitally, in an open tab, however you do it, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 19. Uh, Today, we are entering sort of the final descent. If you're on a flight with Dr. Luke, what it would be is put your uh, seat back to the upright position, put your tray tables in. We're beginning our approach, right, to the landing of the book. Um, in the spring, we celebrate something called Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is, is the week before the resurrection of Jesus, which is Easter or Resurrection Sunday. And that's what we're looking at this morning in Luke 19. It's the end of this road trip to Jerusalem that Luke began 10 chapters earlier in Luke chapter 9. Uh, If there was GPS happening, it would be, you have reached your destination, right? And so we're entering this this season of Jesus' life and ministry that's the end of his time on earth, not his end of his time being alive, which is a good thing. This morning, I've called uh, called this message, Fireworks Over Jerusalem. Um, Like most of you, I've had fireworks on my mind for much longer than just last night. Uh, for weeks and weeks and weeks, we've heard fireworks almost every night in many neighborhoods. I've been talking to some of you. And for, for me as a kid, our kids always marvel at this, but you can see why one of the favorite holidays around the Carlson home growing up with four young boys was the holiday that gives you the opportunity to light things on fire and then have it exponentially do things way more than a single match or a magnifying glass would do sparklers and little snakes and twizzlers and all the kinds of different things that we would buy. Um, That was the 70s and early 80s around San Jose. And of course, that's all illegal now. Um, And showing a biblical worldview, the fallenness of mankind is that we still have fireworks going on um, for weeks and weeks at a time. But fireworks, on the one hand, is a celebration, right? It's, it's a celebration of our nation's birth, of our independence, and all these different things. But there's a double ring to fireworks. If I were to say there's fireworks over the United States right now, or fireworks over San Jose, you would think of literal fireworks, but your brain in this season of our history would go to metaphorical fireworks, right? Looking at the news nightly and seeing our downtown city hall look like a war zone. Fireworks, metaphorically, are going on in cities across our nation. And so as we look at fireworks over Jerusalem, it's the same double ring. There's sort of a double meaning to this, and they sit side by side in the text, and we're going to look at this. The double meaning is this, that Jesus is on the end of his road trip. He's approaching the holy city, the capital city, Jerusalem, and what waits for him there is utterly history-changing. In fact, we divide our calendars by the events that will take place in a few days. And he does two things. Jesus acts kingly, and he publicly receives worship as Messiah in a parade that leads into the city of Jerusalem. This is unlike how he's been acting the entire gospel so far. This is a pronounce, uh, pronouncement of, of who he is. So this is the um, sort of you know, celebratory fireworks over Jerusalem, right? But right on the heels of that, we see Jesus doing something really curious, and that is his, he's weeping over the capital city of Jerusalem. Just as the Old Testament prophets have done, because he knows that fireworks of a different kind are coming on this city, Jerusalem. Okay? So physical fireworks, metaphorical fireworks, we tracking? All right, I see those head nods. Good. Thumbs up in the live chat, which I'm not watching because I'm busy preaching. What I want to tell you about this morning is this. As we, 
as we get our heads around Jesus riding on a donkey and people waving palm branches, we've seen this reenacted, we've seen this on cards, we've heard this preached about, and familiarity can cause us to sort of gloss over things and just go, oh yeah, I know this story, and kind of move on to other things. As I sat with this this week, right in the middle of summer, instead of the middle of spring around Easter time, so powerful to just see things come out, and I'm going to try and show a few of these, but there is way more going on than just Jesus riding a donkey and people cloaking the donkey in their streets with their, with their clothing. This is, the, this is a central piece to a giant story that the Bible is telling. Um, you've heard Ben and I mention the Bible Project. We got to hear these two guys at Hume Lake several years ago at a pastor's event. And um, it's just an incredible way to kind of communicate and tell the story and give you, they're really good at bird's eye view things of whole books of the Bible or whole themes in the Bible. I'd encourage you to check it out, bibleproject.com I think is what it is. But what I want you to do is I want you to watch this little short video um, talking about the story of the Bible and I want you to watch for our scene that we're going to look at, okay, Jesus on a donkey uh, riding into the city. So check this out. Okay, so that's the Bible in whole. We're looking at one of four biographies. This one happens to be called Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And of course, Dr. Luke isn't just recounting the life of Jesus, the way that someone might really appreciate a historical figure or an inventor or a sports figure, but rather he says this, that miraculous things are going on in our times, and I must write an orderly account of these things. This must be written down. This is the long-awaited-for and long-promised Messiah, Jesus, that is here. And what's sad is this, is that even in the current times of this, people who lived through this, most missed what was really going on. They missed the story that they were in. That sounds so familiar to us, right? To miss the grander story of what we're living through. And what we see is this, um, just in this passage, there is true and lasting peace that is being offered. I want to show you three ways really quickly by way of introduction, three ways that peace is woven through these few verses of this little narrative event going on um, in this section. Okay, so look for peace. Here's number one. They are entering the city of Jerusalem. Built into the word, the, the city named Jerusalem is the word peace. Literally, the, the, the name Jerusalem means foundation of peace. Okay, so here's Jesus riding into the foundation of peace. Here's number two. Jesus comes riding on a donkey. Jesus is knowingly acting in kingly ways. Jesus knows that he's fulfilling kingly prophecies. Listen to Zechariah chapter 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation um, is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, if you imagine a king in his coronation riding into his capital city, um, riding on something, you would not imagine it to be a lowly donkey, right? So, just about three years ago to the day, it was July 2nd, 2017, uh, my son Ethan and I got to vacation in Bogota, Colombia. Uh, 
to be with Angel and Sandra and their daughter Isabella. And so we were down there and, um, and had this great opportunity. And, and a friend of theirs said, hey, do you guys want to go horseback riding? We said, sure, that sounds awesome. Horseback riding through Columbia. That sounds really incredible. Um, so as they often do, we get there, and they asked who the most experienced rider was. Well, by far, I was the most experienced rider, so I raised my hand. I said, that's probably me. We all talked amongst ourselves. And I was thrilled. I always love to be the most experienced rider in a group. Why? Because they always give you the most spirited horse if you're the most experienced rider, right? So that was me. So I, I sort of you know, jumped at the chance to say, hey, that's, that's me. I'm the most experienced rider. And I want you to know, I've never experienced fear. Fear isn't associated with horseback riding for me. Maybe when I was a kid, the first couple times, but for me, it's just pure excitement and enjoyment. Well, that is until I am standing on the railing next to the horse pen, horse corral, uh, and and I'm waiting to to put on my helmet and get stuff going, and I'm looking at the corral, and um, I want you to take a, a little look at this. I want you to watch. There's, there's two white horses. One of them has a braided tail, okay? My horse is the braided tail horse, okay? So take, take a look at, at this. There's Ethan and Isabella. Okay, there he is bucking around over there. Watch the braided tail. Oh, I'm going to go annoy that one freak out people here. I'm going to do more chasing. And just for good measure, I'll add a bite to those guys right there. Now, mind you, this was just this was just by the time I got my phone out and started videotaping. He was doing that this whole time, and uh, and then they said, "Okay, which which one of you again is the most experienced?" And I, of course, looked around. I said, "I don't, I don't know who raised their hand for that." Well, of course, it was me. Um, and I I've never done this before. I'm sitting on top of the horse. Annie Norvell, you're laughing right now at the inexperience of this. I'm sitting on a horse, thinking, "I wonder what it's going to feel like to break a leg falling off a horse." I've done that in other settings, but I've never done it off a horse. So I was actually prepping for that. Now I bring up this experience because that is the horse. If you're going to pick any horse to ride in as a conquering king to start your kingdom, that's the horse you pick. You pick the one that is biting others and chasing others and kicking others and annoying everyone else. And then you tame it and you harness all that fire breathing dragoness of a horse and you come charging in to show your power and your authority. Not Jesus. Jesus picks a donkey. He's not doing this just to sort of reverse engineer what's going on in Zechariah. He is doing this because think of what a wrong message it would send to ride in on some big white conquering fire-breathing stallion that's picking on all of the others. To ride in on a war horse would send exactly the opposite message of what Jesus is all about. Jesus is bringing true and lasting peace. He enters the city of peace. He comes in riding a donkey. And then number number three, a song of peace breaks out. It says this, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King 
who comes in the name of the Lord. And here it is. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. True and lasting peace is what Jesus is offering. And it turns out that peace is a person. Jesus is offering himself in this moment. Ephesians 2, just jot down Ephesians 2, but Ephesians 2, looking back on the events that were unfolding before them right now, would write this, that Jesus is our peace. It's not just that he is peace and offers it. It says Jesus is our peace. He not only brings us peace with God, but Jesus brings us peace with one another, clearly on display as a need in our nation right now. And Jesus even brings us peace within our own selves. But sadly, most of the time, um, the things happening right in front of Jesus are being missed out on. I want to take you back a couple of slides because this got a little bit out of whack. Jesus just comes off of the um, story, a, a parable that teaches, and he's teaching about the uh, real, the, the hypothetical, the, 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 the teaching rejection of a nobleman who's going to come and leave and then come back as a ruling king. And what we have in that story is we have servants who are given, remember, their, their mina mushroom, their life coin of how they're going to spend their life, and they're going to give account for it. But we also have average everyday citizens, and the average everyday citizens are the ones who send a delegation after saying, we do not want this one to rule over us. And what we're going to see now is a real-life experience of that rejection. Jesus now is going to experience the real-life rejection of what had just been done. And of course, before that, we get to uh, the triumphal entry, and that, and that um, these fireworks over Jerusalem are celebratory. It's this short-lived uh, moment in time where the crowds cheer Jesus as Savior. This is the parade. This is it. This is the one where we say, everything's going to change. All of our hopes, all of our expectations are going to be met in this person. Let me read starting in verse 28. Um, and it says this, Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, this story that he just had, had talked about, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, sort of suburbs of Jerusalem, at the mount that is called Olivet, he set two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where you are entering. You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. Verse 32. So those who were sent went away and found it just as, as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. And as they rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude and disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace 
in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So the good news that's going to be preached throughout the world and continues to be preached is happening right here in Jerusalem. It's all about to unfold. Everything that Jesus lived for is pointing to this moment. Jesus is acting in a knowingly kingly way, fulfilling kingly prophecies. And yet, like everything else in his kingdom, it's upside down and inverted of what we see. It shows just how messed up and broken our brains are. We always think one thing about Jesus, what he brings, what he offers, what his kingdom is all about, and then it feels like it's flipped completely on its head when it actually shows up. So that's, that's the celebratory piece, right? Jesus rides in, there's giant celebration. And what happens is this. Jesus' crowning moment is also his darkest hour. What we have is we have God and we have sin on a collision course that's going to take place on the cross. This true and lasting peace that Jesus offers, this true and lasting peace that Jesus is, does not come without a fight, without a battle. And so let me pick up, starting in verse 41, part two of what we see in these events, and that is this, the metaphorical fireworks that are going to be showing up. Let's get past that video, and here we are. Um, And this is now long-term sorrow. So we have short-term celebration that only lasts a few days, and now we turn to sort of a darkening over Jerusalem, metaphorical fireworks that are showing up and being predicted by the Savior. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Verse 44. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. If you can imagine with me this scene, this giant coronation, this celebration. And if you were making a movie, you would just begin to pan in and zoom zoom in on the face of the one at the center of it all. And as you get close to the face, you notice the countenance of Jesus. And as you see Jesus at the very center, he's sorrowful. He's weeping over the very city that celebrates his arrival. The real-life rejection of God's promises and protection is what awaits these cheering people. I want you to take yourself there for a moment and just sort of in our, in our redeemed, uh, the Holy Spirit indwells us, renews our mind, in our redeemed imagination, I want you to imagine sitting in that scene if you caught sight of a sobbing Savior, what would go through your mind? What emotions does that stir up? As you begin to try to see this juxtaposition of a sobbing Savior and a cheering crowd, what do you make of that in the moment? I mean, this is such a triumphant day. 
And yet here we see his countenance. As villagers and peasants and people from all over the countryside would be, would be ascending to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover in the great city. It would not have been lost on these Galileans from around that he was with that this Jesus is now doing the very thing that they read about in their prophets. What did the prophets of old, the Old Testament prophets do? They wept over the city of Jerusalem. They pronounced judgment on the city of Jerusalem. And we also know from history, and they would have known their history, that the prophets were killed because they told the truth over the city of Jerusalem. Friends, there is a very real and tangible, fearsome danger to rejecting God. And there's, there's things that happen in the moment. There's things that happen in the weeks ahead. There's things that happen decades ahead. The result of saying no to God, remember just like the citizens in the story Jesus told last week, there's, there's horrible torment for people who reject God. They are choosing a life apart from God. And for these people, literally in the city of Jerusalem, if you fast forward a few decades to the date of 70 AD, you would know that judgment has come in a very physical way. That is the day, that is the year that, that the Romans sacked Jerusalem. And, and in, in a physical level, not just a spiritual level, this city was left exactly what Jesus said it. There's weeping, there's tearing, there's killing. Life as they knew it was utterly destroyed in 70 AD. Let me pull out of the, our story and out of that time frame and bring you into the present for a minute. You know, people are often just like those found in this event in Luke, aren't they? Receiving Jesus with joy shouting and praising loudly because of the great things they've heard about, because of the great things that they've witnessed, and then also the great expectations they place on him. They receive him joyfully. They join with the crowd. They, they let their voice join the chorus of honoring his name. But then just moments later, days later, they reject the rule of Jesus in their lives. What is, what is willing disobedience except the rebelling against this king? And then they join their voice with a chorus of others shouting and proclaiming and turning against Jesus. Don't we all bring our own expectations to what a Savior is? To what a Savior should be? To how a Savior should save? To when a Savior should save? And don't we all experience the frustration, the doubt, the confusion, the pain, the disillusionment? When the things that we placed on our Savior, whoever that is, whatever that is, disappoints us in some way. Well, this is what's going on here. I would say this. I think every person has experienced the pain of the last 10 verses in our passage this morning because you did not know the time of your visitation. What pain and what sorrow and what confusion have come in the lives of men and women because we did not know the day of our visitation. We did not know that God 
is present. What accusation and what estrangement has come, all because you have not been mindful, you have not kept in front of your face this promise of Jesus, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. As you read the story of God from beginning to end, both in the Old Testament and in the New, the Father takes great pains in communicating to his children, I am with you, always. If it's the Old Testament, keep your camp clean. I literally walk amongst your midst. I'm in your camp. And over and over, Jesus says, even though I'm about to go away physically, I'm not leaving you. I will not leave you as orphans. As he sends them out on the Great Commission, he says, Lo, I am with you always wherever you go. So just knowing that he sees, knowing that God is present, makes up for a thousand questions we may have. God, your presence makes up for a thousand sorrows and bouts with doubt that we experience. Pray with me. God, you are great, and your ways are so much higher than my ways. God, your thoughts than my thoughts. Forgive me. Forgive us of our fickleness. Like the crowds, God, we will cheer you one moment and jeer you the next. God, forgive us for the times we've easily received you, only to turn on you. Or worse, God, to turn away from you and against you. God, the steadfast love that you offer, the depth of forgiving and cleansing that is ours in you, that you freely give. God, I pray for those listening and watching right now, those who will be listening and watching in the future. Today, in this moment, give us the grace to sense your presence, that you see us and that you're with us. In the holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. What I want to do now is um, I want to wrap up our time with this. As we look at passages of Scripture, there are sort of the, the surface, bold headlines of what is happening and what's going on. But then there are also additional little subplots, little sub-themes that are happening. And as I sat with this text, I saw three things leap out to me. And uh, these are like little veins of gold that, again, they're not sitting on the surface. They're not the nuggets that you walk along and pick up the obvious ones. These are sort of veins. You have to dig a little bit. You have to work a little bit. But you see them, and they're sitting right in front of you. If you're taking notes, you can just kind of jot these down, and I'll kind of walk these through pretty quickly. Um, But the first is the idea of lament. Jesus models and teaches lament. I kept thinking, I kept mulling over this idea of a sobbing Savior. What does it mean? How, how concerning is it, children, when you see your parents crying, just sobbing? That's, that's disconcerting for a child. And I would only imagine if I was there as a companion of Jesus, a friend of Jesus, a disciple, a follower, and I saw my Lord and Savior, the one I've devoted my life to, weeping, sobbing over this city. It would cause concern. What we see in a sobbing Savior is the heart of God. What do we see Jesus doing? He's speaking hard truth, pronouncements 
of judgment. Hear this. God is not cold or distant. Jesus' tears reveal the empathy of God. In talking about the utter and total rejection of Jesus as their king, we don't want this one to rule over us. We reject his reign. Even to the point of murdering the son, which would happen soon, the first response of the heart of God as seen in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, is not rage, it is not ranting, but it is a river of tears. Jesus is not sobbing for the rejection that he's suffering. Jesus is weeping for the harm that rejection brings on these sinners. Remember, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. As Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, I believe it's in John 13, it says he loved them well to the very end. You'd imagine in the upper room with his close friends, those who are left with him, that he's going to love them to the very end. But Jesus isn't just good sometimes. He is the embodiment of good. And God alone is good. And as God in a body, Jesus loved well to the end, even his executioners. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. These tears are an expression of God's heart toward the sinner. The unpenitent, the unturning, the actively rebellious citizen. Tears for what they will experience. You know, America tends to devalue or run from pain at all cost. Many people make their living entertaining and distracting and diverting people away from hard things and hard conversations and hard truths and hard realities. Lament is not only an unknown word, it is also an unknown practice or discipline. Lament, church, is our word. We know about lament. We have a whole book called Lamentations. Lament lets us sit with pain and misery. Lament lets us feel the weight and hurt of rejection and sin and lets us cry out to God. If you want words to say, open the middle of your Bible. You will see many, many songs of lament. It's one of the largest categories of songs in our songbook of the Old Testament. Lament lets us see our neediness. Lament lets us hurt with those who hurt. Lament teaches us empathy. Lament in the dark highlights just how good the light is. Three examples from the scriptures. Ecclesiastes says this, there's a time for mourning and a time for dancing. If you have devoted your life to figuring out how to party and dance to the exclusion of all mourning, I promise you that's a broken way to live. That will eventually run out and burn you. There's a time for mourning and a time for dancing. Jesus models the transition right before our eyes. Celebration that turns to sorrow. They live side by side in the scriptures. There's a time for dancing and there's a time for mourning as Jesus models in this text. I won't take time to read the whole account, but 2 Samuel 12, King David 
sins wickedly against God. Judgment is pronounced on him. And what does he do? He laments. He laments his sin before God. He laments the punishment, which will be the life of his child born out of wedlock. It says, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Sitting in darkness, sitting in loneliness, sitting in lament, has a way of celebrating the dawn light, has a way of reconnecting us with people and with light and with goodness in a way that not sitting in lament doesn't accomplish. Here's the second thing we see so clearly in this. God is in charge of history. God is in charge of current events. The Bible speaks to world events, and here's two truths that live side by side. The Bible speaks to world events, and it is very hard to interpret current events through the lens of Scripture. Why? Because right now we see dimly as looking through sort of a fogged up mirror. We don't see things crystal clear. Just like these people who cheered one moment and got caught up jeering Jesus days later, it's hard to see the story you are living in as the hands of time turn minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. We only get to read sort of one page of the story at a time. So think about this. What is God doing in the world right now? If you're like me, I've been hungry for reading and learning and praying and sitting and saying, God, what are, you, what are you doing? Let me encourage you, church. If you are a Christian, read your Bible first and most. Get what God has said and doesn't change through time. Get that locked in your head as you get opinions from all sides, as you get articles and podcasts and vlogs from all over the world with opinions of, of what's happening. Test it against what you know of Scripture. Keep in conversation with God. This is what it means to pray without ceasing. It's not you yapping endlessly. It's not you repeating the Lord's Prayer over and over and over. It's you in conversation with the Father. It's you doing what we talked about at the end of last week, resting in the finished work of what's already gone on, sitting at the feet of Jesus like Mary. So let me throw a couple of these out. How about COVID-19? Is this the discipline of God on a nation that's gone astray? On a world that isn't honoring Him? Or is this the natural effect of a fallen world? Or is this the end times? Or you fill in the blank. How about the crickets, the, the, the locusts? I, I've got, I don't usually do this. This is a preacher, preacher tactic. COVID, crickets, criminal, and closed. Okay, that's where I'm going. Uh, they all start with C. Um, how about crickets or locusts in East Africa? I ask you the same thing. Is this discipline on East Africa, farmers who aren't turning to God? Uh, is this end times? Um, is this just the natural way of things in a fallen world, a creation that groans and longs for the restoration of Jesus? How about criminal use of power? Uh, the, the, the police are taking the brunt of it, but there's also criminal use of power in politics, right? So whether you use a pen or a baton, the criminal use of power, God gives power, uh, gives people authority to serve the people being led. And we see this in the most intimate institution of marriage and family and business and church. Of course we're going to see it in the nation. The criminal abuse of power. So is the criminal abuse of power being exposed and the criminal protesting to this 
Not the peaceful protesting, not the godly um, kind of anger, but the criminal protesting. What does God have to say in all of this? How about closed churches? Are closed churches in California the work of the enemy trying to shut down the work of God? Or are closed churches in California and around the country an opportunity to see things and seek God in different ways and see fields that are ripe for harvest that we were blind to or unwilling to look at prior to shelter in place? The Bible speaks to things today, friends. The Bible and the headlines is a powerful thing to keep reading and overlay. Some things in Scripture leap out all the more clearer because of the crisis we are in. And there are whole other things that come in and they feel like absolute gray areas. And you hear good points on this side and good points on that side. Oh, and by the way, there's a third side. And you say, God, help me understand the times. Help me to know how to rest in you and to respond properly. Know this, that Jesus knew what was going on. Think about this. He knows what's going on in just a few moments with the donkey, right? He says, hey, here's what's going to happen. Go do this. And if someone says it, say this. Nails it. He also knows what is going to happen in a few days. He's been predicting this all along of what awaits him in Jerusalem. That would be um, his, his mock trial, his persecution, his torment, and his, his eventual execution and resurrection. But Jesus also knows what's coming in a few decades. In 70 AD, it's just a well-known historical fact that Jerusalem falls, exactly as Jesus predicts is going to happen. So we look and we learn at the feet of Jesus. This is where Proverbs comes in. We lean on his understanding of things and not on our own. Here's the third vein, the little sub-theme that's found in this is the idea of vulnerable children. At this church, God has woven this thread through our church since the very beginning. He has given a special spotlight to care for vulnerable children. Jesus calls out his concern for vulnerable children. Look at verse 43. He's predicting what's going to happen. He says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you or your children in your midst. Now don't read this with a modern lens. To call out the care for these little lives that are put in danger is countercultural. And Luke takes pains to show us that Jesus cares for the little children. Why are these children vulnerable? Think about this for a second. When we talk vulnerable children care around this church, we're thinking about children who are going to bed at night apart from their biological family. Something is broken in the home nuclear family that they can't stay there. So we care for the orphans of the world. We care for vulnerable children, some orphans, some not truly orphaned here in our own area. But what is putting these kids at risk? Is it not the rejection of their parents? It's the rejection of God by their parents that puts them in danger. Each one of us personally is in Christ or not in Christ. Yet parents 
You elders of the family, you're modeling the joyful receiving of Jesus or the rejecting of Jesus has significant impact on the generations that follow in your footsteps. It's so sobering to have a child in your home and you look at this child and think, wow, there's, there's a person that this child will call mom and dad for the rest of their life. And to hold this little baby and to feel the weight of this responsibility, God, help me in my fallenness, in my brokenness, to ever keep steering and pointing this child to what you are like. Help me to cut a path in life that those who are in my care can follow safely in behind me. Help me not to be a citizen that rejects the rule of King Jesus, but help me be a servant that invests my life for something that will go far beyond what my little life would expect to produce. God, help us to show our children the path to safety. You know, we have sort of a narcissistic way sometimes of talking about what it means to be a Christian. I have said this, so there's loads of grace here. But we explain it this way often, that we think of Jesus coming into our life. Isn't that pretty self-centered? Isn't that pretty sort of kindergarten to think the world revolves around us, that it's Jesus coming into our life? As you read the Bible, and as I think about it more, it's, it's really kind of the opposite. It's that we come into his life. It's not that Jesus enters our life. It's that we get to get into the life of Jesus. This is the picture of the vine and the branches, that, that we abide in him and he in us. But there's this priority that we get to enter the life of Jesus. Now this means a lot of things, but it certainly means that the fellowship of suffering comes with um, the, 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 the mark of being a true Christian. So to become like Christ is to be treated by, uh, like, like Christ. To become like Christ is to be treated like Christ. Now that means all the wonderful things of getting Christ's resume. When God looks at us, he sees the resume of the Father. But it also means the rejection of the world. If you are not yet a Christian, I want to say welcome. This is the place for you to open the scriptures and, and, and see the claims of Christianity. But I would, I would invite you, because Jesus invites you, to enter following Jesus, to enter life with Jesus. It is the best decision that I've ever made, hands down. But I want to warn you, just like Jesus would, that your decision to be a disciple will mean that those in your life may initially cheer your decision. But eventually, you follow Jesus long enough. Even your closest ones within your home and your inner circle will eventually jeer your decision. It may turn vile and ugly against you because of your devotion to King Jesus' rule in your life. Jeering and disgust and misunderstanding will be your lot. People will be thinking they are doing good to shut you up. People will be thinking they are good to trample and drown out your voice, to mock you, and to tell you your views are outdated, wrong, or just flat out wicked. Jesus tells us this, that when this happens, you should rejoice. You should celebrate. You should be very glad about it. Why? Because this verifies your authenticity 
as a follower of Jesus Christ. Isn't this the way the prophets are treated by citizens? Isn't this the way Jesus, the Son, is treated by average, everyday citizens? In Acts 5, some followers of Jesus are arrested and they're told to shut up preaching about Jesus. Um, and they refused. And they said, we're not going to honor you. We're going to honor what God tells us to do. Um, and then in Acts 540, they are, they are, you know, they've, they've, they've just refused the magistrates. And it says there, they, um, they, they, the leaders, called in the apostles. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. Why? Because they feared a riot would happen um, uh, from the people. Then it says this. Mind you, they just got beat for preaching Jesus. It says, then they, the disciples, left the presence of the council, watch this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. I want you to use the questions this week, the handout that you've, be, that you've been given, to do some inner life work. Some of you are doers and you want just an action item. Well, I don't want you to get on a donkey and come riding into City Hall. That's, that's not the application here. It may be hard to sit with this passage, but it's good to stop and, and inspect the ways God is working. It's good to find out why is Jesus celebrating one, one moment and what is he really weeping about? Sit with that. Ask yourself, do I celebrate and weep over the same things that Jesus does or is my celebration and my weeping more akin to the crowd? God, help us to rejoice in the things that you're doing in our midst. God, help us to remember you are doing the work. You are forming yourself in us a little bit more each day. May we recognize your presence in our midst. May we, Neighborhood Bible Church, know the day of the visitation of God.